You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week is such an exciting week because we have such a special guest on with us to talk about the myths and misconceptions around diabetes. Before we do that, let's just do a brief recap of last week. Um, Before we do that, actually, can we just take a moment to appreciate the title of last week's episode, which is... (laughs) My neck, my back is chiropractic whack. Um, if, if you are a child of the 80s, maybe the 90s, I'm sure you understand the reference. Um, and yeah, ho- hope you're not judging us right now. But anyway, so we, we tackled a very controversial topic. Um, and, and Andrea uh, can attest to the fact that our, our DMs were hot, hot, hot last week. We, we talked about chiropractic. So we, we talked about, well, we, we kicked things off with a description of chiropractic, gave a history of the industry. Um, we detailed the training and credentials that someone needs to, to become a chiropractor. And we also talked about the title of doctor and how it is often misused and can be misleading. We then described several studies, including some um, randomized controlled trials um, that, that investigated whether chiropractic actually improves outcomes. Um, what else did we talk about? We, we talked about the safety of chiropractic, some adverse uh, uh, um, events that are associated with chiropractic, and we spent a little time focusing on kids in particular, since some actually recommend chiropractic for infants. And um, yeah, if you didn't tune in, I'll just tell you that we're, we're kind of horrified by that um, because there really are some uh, many risks associated with that. And then we, we tap things off with a discussion about the impacts of chiropractors on the anti-vax movement and, and the role that they've played even before COVID, but now, you know, especially in, in light of COVID. So if you didn't tune into that episode, we highly recommend it. Andrew, did I forget anything or did you want to highlight anything in particular? No, I mean, I think that that's a, a great summary. Um, you know, if you are a proponent of chiropractic, you know, this may challenge some of your preconceived notions, but we would encourage you to just go in with an open mind and listen to the data that we share. All right. Well, now that that's out of the way, I am so excited to introduce our guest, Montana Mullins. Montana is everything to me. So basically, um, I think you all know I I have a public health data consultancy called Vital Statistics Consulting, and Montana is our administrative services manager. That's her technical title, um, but really she's just our go-to for absolutely everything at the company. In addition to everything that she does for VSC, she's also the executive producer of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Beyond that. She helps to manage our incredible team of interns. She helps us organize our 
Patreon memberships, our giveaways, our merch, every single thing related to this podcast and to our social media platform, Montana has touched, and we would not have on Bias Science without Montana. Um, just a little bit more about her. She is a dedicated military wife. Um, she volunteers countless hours serving school-age children and military families in Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and New York. She currently lives in West Point with her husband, two sons, and rescue cat. And I call her my human Xanax because Montana um, calms me down on a daily basis. I really cannot say enough about her. And Montana is joining us today to talk about her experience with diabetes. So without further ado, Montana, welcome to the pod. Um, do you want to just say hello and maybe kick things off with a discussion of your diagnosis? Absolutely. Um, first of all, that is possibly the greatest introduction ever. I feel like I was coming up to get like a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. <laughs> um, so thank you very much. And thank you, Jess and Andrea, for having me on. I have been um, sort of itching to do something like this for a while. And so I'm, I'm just very excited to come on and sort of talk a little bit more um, and hopefully help educate people a little bit about diabetes. Um, just to give you a, a sort of a brief history of my experience with diabetes, um, in 2004, I started on a Fulbright scholarship at the University of Louisville, go Cards, out of Kentucky. Um, it was an ROTC scholarship, which meant that I would attend for four years, and then upon graduation, I would commission into the Army as a second lieutenant. Um, first semester of sophomore year, I failed a urinalysis. We had to get those on the regular. Uh, failed the urinalysis. They couldn't really figure out what was going on. They said, oh, maybe it's a UTI. Maybe it's a yeast infection. Um, so they sent me to see the doctor several times, tried, you know, some different medicines. Nothing was really working. And they said, you know, we really recommend that you go see your, your family provider. And so as luck would have it, he was out on vacation that week and I saw his daughter. Uh, and the first thing she said to me was, have you been tested for diabetes? And I thought, well, no, of course not. Because at the time I thought, you know, diabetes is an old person's disease. One of my grandparents on each side of my family had it. And in my mind, I equated diabetes to, to elderly folks. And so I said, no. And so, you know, they ran the test and of course it came back and I had filled the urine test because my glucose levels were so high that every time I urinated, the glucose was spilling over into my urine and it caused a false reading on the drug test. And so, you know, at the time I was 19 years old. And so they initially said, oh, you know, because you're older, we think you're probably a type two diabetic. And we'll go into the types a little bit later in the episode. Um, so they put me on a medication called metformin and I continued to get sicker and feel worse. So I went back to the doctor and they said, you know, we think you are just a late case of, of type one diabetes. And so they started me on insulin uh, immediately. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just Montana. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I know we're going to get into the science here, but I feel like your story is, is something that happens just all too often. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, misdiagnoses and some of the nuance between different types of diabetes, but 
I can just say that I'm so glad that you were finally correctly diagnosed and are on the treatment that is appropriate for you. It made a huge difference. So Andrea, I think you have a quick reminder for us before we jump into the meat of this episode. Absolutely. So this is your friendly reminder that we've got a new partnership with Descent Pins, um, and they make pins, jewelry, t-shirts, and more fun stuff that celebrates science. And actually, they've made a product that is a perfect tie-in to today's episode. Yes. So after releasing their extremely popular vaccine collection, Descent Pins received a lot of comments saying that their vaccine vial products looked like an insulin vial. And that led them to create a special vial pin to be wrapped by diabetics and their loved ones everywhere. You can also order earrings in silver and 24 karat gold plated too. So if you want to help represent diabetics, you can get your vial pin and vial drop or stud earrings today at descentpins.com slash insulin. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T P-I-N-S dot com slash insulin. And you can use discount code unbiased15 to get 15% off your order. I may have to get a pair of those. Um. I was going to say, I, I want a pair too. So Andrea, can you, I mean, can you maybe kick things off, you know, telling us what is diabetes, glucose, insulin signaling, what are all these things? What do they mean? Yeah, for sure. So diabetes is a catch-all term for a disease that occurs when your blood sugar, which also is called blood glucose, is too high. And so we're going to get into kind of the nitty gritty because there are different types of diabetes, but that's ultimately what is happening. So whenever you eat anything, it's getting metabolized in your body and broken down into usable Um, energy components. And ultimately, those usable energy components is glucose. So, you know, uh, sorry to be a Debbie Downer to all of your low-carb diet folks, but, but anything you eat is ultimately ending up in some sort of simple sugar to be used by your cells. So, Um, Normally, what happens when you consume food is as whether it's a protein, a fat, or a carbohydrate, these macromolecules are ultimately metabolized and digested and end up in these very small building blocks, which ultimately turn into or get shuttled into your circulatory system as blood glucose. And, And that blood glucose doesn't stay in your bloodstream. It needs to get into your cells so it can actually provide your body with the energy it needs. Um and ultimately enable you to survive and grow and do all of your normal physiological functions. So the key organ system that's involved in this is the pancreas. So the pancreas is an organ in the abdomen that produces hormones, it secretes enzymes, and all of these things are necessary for digestion and metabolism. And so one of these hormones that the pancreas produces is the hormone insulin. And so insulin is a protein-based hormone or a peptide hormone that is specifically produced by a particular cell type in the pancreas called beta islet cells. And insulin basically enables our cells to take up that glucose that's in our blood, um, 
uptake it into liver cells, fat cells, and skeletal muscle cells. So once insulin promotes the uptake of the blood glucose into those cells, the glucose is then converted into stored energy. So that could be the molecule glycogen, and it could also be molecules called triglycerides. And that ultimately depends on which of those cell types takes up those glucose molecules. So this is highly regulated, and it's a it's a phenomenon called a negative feedback loop. So basically, when our body or our pancreas senses that blood glucose is high because we've eaten something, it secretes more insulin to promote the uptake of that glucose and ultimately decrease the level of circulating blood sugar. And we actually have another set of cells in the pancreas called the alpha islet cells that secrete an opposing molecule called glucagon. And glucagon basically works in opposition to insulin. So when blood sugar is low, the glucagon stimulates the release of stored energy from those liver cells, fat cells, and muscle cells. So if you say woke up and you felt hungry and you felt kind of low energy because your blood sugar was low since you hadn't had a recent meal, the glucagon would promote the the breakdown and the release of, of glucose into your bloodstream. So this is a highly regulated system that relies on the appropriate sensing, recognition, and regulation of blood glucose. So when you have a type of diabetes, something is aberrant in this pathway, basically. So it could be, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but it could be the fact that you physically don't have the appropriate cells, so you're not producing the insulin molecule that's necessary to regulate blood sugar. It could be that your cells are just behaving inappropriately due to an underlying medical condition. Um, so there's a lot of nuance going on. But ultimately, all different types of diabetes um, lead to high blood glucose that is not being appropriately regulated by the pancreas. Wow. Okay. So you, we're going to get into some details there, right? Because there are a lot of myths around sugar and glucose and what that means for people with diabetes. So we're going to clear that up in, in just a bit. But maybe we could just take a step back for a sec and talk about how prevalent diabetes is in the United States. So 30.3 million people in this country, in the United States, have some form of diabetes. Today, we're going to speak specifically about type 1 diabetes, and about 1.6 million Americans are living with type 1 diabetes, including about 200,000 youth, and we're talking about people who are under the age of 20, and 1.4 million adults. Um, 64,000 people are diagnosed each year in the U.S., and 5 million people in the U.S. are expected to have type 1 diabetes by the year 2050, including nearly 600,000 youth. Um, now, type 1 diabetes is, is one of the most common chronic diseases in children. And I just want to make the distinction here, but I think this is a good time to illustrate the difference between prevalence and incidence. So mm -hmm. what I just described, the prevalence is also known as the disease burden. So how many people in this country are living with type 1 diabetes? And we're talking about, you know, over 1 million people living with diabetes. And, and Montana, you can tell us in a little bit, you know, obviously this is a chronic condition. This is something that requires ongoing management. 
But then when we talk about new cases or, you know, new diagnoses, we're talking about incidence. Um, so about one in every 400 children in the U.S. develops type 1 diabetes, um, and people at any age from toddlers to adults can be diagnosed with it. Um, most children with type, type 1 diabetes are diagnosed between the ages of 4 to 6 or during puberty between the ages of 10 and 14. Andrea, did you want to talk to us a little bit? Uh, is now a good time to talk about the immunology yeah. of type 1 diabetes? Sure. So type 1 diabetes is considered an autoimmune disorder. And so an autoimmune disorder is basically any sort of medical condition that is a result of your body's immune system attacking your self, so self-cells. Um, so the immune system, as we've discussed at length, um, is very complex and tightly regulated, but sometimes things go awry, and autoimmune disorders are a consequence of that. And so in the case of type 1 diabetes, um, this leads your immune system to actually attack those specific cells in the pancreas, those beta islet cells that are responsible for producing insulin and destroy them. And so what ends up happening is you physically don't have those cells anymore, so therefore your body can no longer produce insulin. So when you eat food, you have no way to regulate or control the amount of blood glucose in your body. And in addition, you have no way to get that blood glucose to be taken up by your cells to provide the appropriate energy that your body needs and your cells need to actually conduct all of the physiological processes that you need to do. And so there are a lot of other autoimmune disorders. We've discussed some of them on the pod and some of them on the podcast page. Um, but this is one of these very classical autoimmune disorders. And in order to treat this, you basically have to replace what what your body is missing. And in this case, this is insulin, since obviously, you know, people can get, you know, various transplants and things like that. But of course, the the easiest and the standard treatment um, is replacing with insulin. And so um, that is ultimately what we what we use to address an autoimmune disorder to counteract the fact that your immune system is is attacking those cells. Now, autoimmune disorders are caused by a variety of things. Um, there's never one specific cause. So there's other um, autoimmune disorders like um, lupus and Crohn's disease and things like that. Um, they all are considered multifactorial when there are likely many factors contributing to the development of them. There appear that there are potentially some genetic components to this, um, which is why some cases or, or many cases um, are diagnosed in early childhood. Um, there, there's also some data that suggests that autoimmune disorders can actually be a result of an unidentified viral infection that leads to your immune system essentially being on overdrive. And instead of responding to a viral infection, they start attacking your own cells. So ultimately, the, the etiology or the specific cause of type 1 diabetes is not fully understood, but we do understand the, the pathology, the process in which this occurs and how to kind of regulate and treat it. So, so just to restate, some of what you just said. So the exact 
cause is not known, but we know that there are some environmental factors that may trigger the immune system to destroy um, the beta cells and family history may also contribute to the risk of, of developing diabetes. Um, there's nothing that anyone can do to prevent type 1 diabetes. And, you know, Andrea, as you just said, while there are treatments for it, there, there's really no known cure. Exactly. Um, Okay, so I think now is a good time to maybe um, just discuss the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I think there's some confusion there. Just briefly, my understanding of it is that type 1 diabetes, Andrea, as you just said, it's an autoimmune reaction, right? So that attacks the cell. I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying this, but it attacks the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin. Um, and again, we don't know the specific cause, but it's typically, you know, related to inherited genetics or environmental factors, whereas type 2 diabetes happens when your body becomes resistant to insulin, and type 2 diabetes is, is associated more with genetics, but also um, behavioral habits and, and some lifestyle choices and, and, and diet and such. Would you say that that's accurate? Or That's pretty accurate. Um, with type 2 diabetes, um, you know, instead of an autoimmune disorder where you, where you physically don't have those beta cells that that can't you know that produce insulin they're actually destroyed um type 2 diabetes would be classified as a metabolic disorder so your body can produce some insulin in some instances so so you you have the beta cells um, but typically you're producing insufficient levels of insulin or you know the cells are there and they're functioning but there's something wrong with the pancreas itself or the pancreatic cells where it's not being utilized as effectively um, there is some indication that this can be associated with inflammatory conditions of the pancreas which could be associated with lifestyle and exercise and things like that. But ultimately, you're not actually destroying the cells. They're still there. They're still producing insulin, um, but your body's not as responsive to it or you're not producing enough insulin that you need to effectively control your blood sugar uh, without, you know, medication. So, Montana, you've been, uh, you, you got your, you received your diagnosis, what it was it, 16 years ago or so, but you only recently learned about other types of diabetes. Is that correct? So we do want to just kind of briefly mention those um, because we do want to, you know, be inclusive to our community and understand that it's not just type 1 and type 2. You know, there's gestational diabetes that happens during pregnancy. There's something called type 3C diabetes that happens um, after you've had uh, injury to the pancreas or surgery on the pancreas. Uh, there's something called LADA diabetes, L-A-D-A. Uh, there's a mixture of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So there are definitely different levels and different kinds out there. And as Jess mentioned, you know, I've been a diabetic for 16 years and only recently learned about some of these other types. And Montana, you bring up a great point because there are other types of rare diabetes that are associated with other sorts of of illnesses, like there are um, HIV-associated diabetes due to, um, you know, immune complications as a result of AIDS. There's cystic fibrosis-associated diabetes. There's also a type of diabetes called um, neonatal diabetes. And so ultimately, all of these, what they have in common is that they're affecting your body's ability to appropriately regulate your blood glucose. 
And, you know, Montana, we were both um, mamas, um, so I'm sure you remember doing the, um, I'm, now I'm going back thinking about the screening for gestational diabetes. What is it, the, the glucose challenge test when we, when we drink that super sugary, you know, the syrupy glucose solution, and then an hour later they, they do a blood test to measure a blood sugar level. Um, and so, you know, there are different levels that are considered um, normal, and, and um, if you you, uh, if you have a blood sugar level of 190 milligrams per deciliter or 10.6 millimoles per liter, then that is indicative of, of gestational diabetes. Um, and, and that could be in uh, people who, who never had diabetes before, right? It wasn't on their radar at all. Um, and then if you do have gestational diabetes, your baby could be at a higher risk for health problems, um, but gestational diabetes usually goes away after the baby is born, but then it increases your risk for type 2 diabetes later in life. That is one of the few times I was grateful to be a type 1 diabetic was during both of my pregnancies because I did not have to drink the nasty stuff. <laughs> oh, so. really? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, my yes. gosh. You know, this is I just, an unpopular opinion. I didn't really mind it. We got to pick the flavor. I think I had fruit punch flavor. I mean, it's definitely cloyingly sweet, but I really didn't much mind it. Um, <laughs> but yes. Um, so, but, but that, that is a common myth, right? That all mm -hmm. diabetes are the same and that there's this one umbrella and that they're all caused by eating too much sugar or having a bad diet or lack of exercise. So that's yeah. not at all accurate. That's exactly right. Um, I actually dated a guy in college who was a type one diabetic and, um, you know, we talked a lot about the myths and misconceptions and, um, you know, diabetes, regardless of what type is, it puts you not only, you know, puts you at risk because of the actual disease itself and not being able to appropriately regulate your blood sugar, but it also can lead to long-term problems, circulatory problems, which can ultimately lead to, you know, foot issues, leg issues. Um, it can lead to glaucoma and other sorts of eye issues, um, dental disease, peripheral nerve damage. So it's super important um, that you're appropriately diagnosed if you do have diabetes with the right type of diabetes diabetes because they're managed differently. Montana, were you going to add something before we move on to our next myth? Um, honestly, just that it's it's so frustrating to diabetics that people assume um, that, you know, we're lazy or we don't take care of ourselves or don't take care of our bodies. Uh, when in fact, you know, as Andrea just mentioned, it's essentially a full-time job to manage diabetes. It affects everything, all of your organs. And it's not just, you know, what am I eating today or what am I not eating or what diet am I on? Yeah. Um, you know, when I got married, I was a size zero um, and I was struggling to have my diabetes under control. I was newly diagnosed. My glucose levels were high. Um, and so it has, you know, nothing to do with, with how much I weigh or what I'm eating. It's so much more than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. So this next myth is that diabetes is curable. You just need to go on a special diet or take some supplements. Montana, Andrea, what do you, what say you to that myth? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let Montana jump in first and then I'll, you know, hang on the back end if needed. <laughs> Guys, uh, please stop finding these things on the internet. The most <laughs> disgusting thing that I've seen, first of all, is that someone recommended I drink uh, water that had okra sitting in it overnight. 
because that is supposed to lower your your glucose levels. And I can't think of anything worse than drinking slimy (laughs) water. Like disgusting, absolutely disgusting. I had someone send me an article one time, and she was a nurse, so that made it even worse. um, That if you just got out in the sunshine and and increased your vitamin D levels, that could help your diabetes. Um, You know, people think that if you take cinnamon all the time, that's going to get rid of your diabetes. Stop. Nothing Mm -hmm. is going to get rid of it. If you're a type one, it is not curable. If you're a type two, you can certainly go into remission, but none of these hokey little things that you're seeing online have any bearing over our overall health. They're just not true. And that is true for a lot of medical (laughs) issues, I think. Um, It's it's infuriating. And Montana, as you summed it up so well, um, type 1 diabetes, as we mentioned, is an autoimmune disorder. It destroys the pancreatic cells that you need to produce insulin forever. So that means you have to take insulin in order to appropriately regulate your blood sugar after you eat, because obviously... You can't survive if you're not eating, so that's not an option. Um, With type 2 diabetes, and I know we're not going to get into a ton of the nitty-gritty here, but depending on the scope of your type 2 diabetes, um, some type 2 diabetics can manage their insulin resistance with um, lifestyle changes. Um, some may couple lifestyle changes, you know, exercise and dietary changes with insulin supplementation. Some may take other medications like Montana mentioned earlier. Um, and so it's really important that you have a good, um, you know, endocrinologist and, and, you know, other sorts of medical specialists to help you manage that. But, but yes, insulin's not a cure. It's a treatment. So, For years, people with type 1 diabetes were told that they needed to eat three meals and three snacks a day to keep their blood glucose levels from swinging too high or too low. Um, But thankfully, with modern insulin analogs and regimens, that's, you know, there's no longer a need for such a regimented diet. Um, You can eat a little or a lot depending on what you feel like doing. And, and I, you know, we're going to talk about this in Montana. I, I'm really looking forward to hear, hearing about how you manage your, um, your diabetes and, you know, what, what the day-to-day looks like for someone with type 1 diabetes. Um, so to make sure you're getting the correct amount of insulin, you need to consider what and how much you eat, and then you can match the glucose entering your bloodstream with the insulin dose that you take. Um, but this leads us to talk about sugar. Mm-hmm. So like anyone, you know, for all of us, it's important to make sure that we're eating a healthy diet or a balanced diet. Um, but living with type 1 diabetes does not mean that you need to cut sugar out of your diet completely. And in fact, you know, Montana very frequently will say to me, Jess, you know, I need to go offline for a few minutes. Um, my blood sugar is getting a little low. I need to have a snack. So mm-hmm. sugar can be your friend when, when you're, you know, feeling a little hypoglycemic and you need to boost your blood glucose level. Um, so let's, let's talk about this. Andrea Montana, let's talk about the fact that di- diabetics can, in fact, have sugar. Can we debunk this, the myth that there, you can't have any sugar? <laughs> Please. God, yes. So ultimately, you know, having diabetes is not about eliminating a class of macromolecules from your diet because ultimately, as we mentioned, everything you eat is 
going to be processed into small uh, molecules like glucose. So even if you say, oh, well, I'm not going to eat sugar, if you eat protein, protein byproducts ultimately get shuttled into that same metabolic pathway. So, you know, it is obviously a myth that you simply cannot eat sugar, but ultimately everything you eat is going to be processed into some sort of sugar byproduct. And, you know, in order to address that, we have the treatment, right? We have insulin. So as long as you're keeping track of what you're eating and making sure that you have your treatment available to regulate your blood glucose and ensure that you take the appropriate amount of insulin, you take the appropriate type of insulin when you need to, you absolutely can have sugar. And, and I, you know, I've seen this firsthand, um, you know, with my, with my ex in college where I would have to keep a stash of gummy bears and orange juice and things like that because, you know, especially when you have a hectic schedule, when you're a diabetic, you know, skipping a meal can have worse, far worse consequences than, you know, a person with normal blood sugar signaling. Um, and so I think that, you know, having this fallacy of this rigidity, you have to stay away from food product X, Y, and Z actually can lead to more issues among diabetics um, than the benefits. Andrea, absolutely. And, you know, there are some studies that show that people within the diabetes community are two to four times more likely to have an eating disorder versus their non-diabetic peers. And again, this goes back to this rigid mentality of, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that. No, there's nothing that we cannot have as long as we are appropriately managing, as long as we're taking, you know, the necessary amount of insulin. We know what we're doing. <laughs> so we definitely can eat, you know, whatever it is that we want. But I mean, I've been at like family get togethers and somebody will come up to me and say, oh, should you be eating that? You shouldn't have that on your plate. Don't worry about what somebody else has on their plate. <laughs> worry about what's on your plate and stop forcing people into eating disorders by perpetuating this myth. It's a it's it's a big deal. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, not only are you managing this lifelong illness, you know, now you have people basically, you know, keeping track of you and and um, policing what you're putting into your body. It certainly yeah. does not seem like it would help the situation at all. Not in the least. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Montana, didn't you once have a doctor make a pretty outlandish recommendation to you? Um, well, multiple times. Um, but but the time that I think you're referencing uh, is actually when I was first diagnosed. Now, keep in mind, you know, I wasn't diagnosed through an endocrinologist. She was a family practitioner. 
But this will underscore the importance of educating clinicians about type 1 diabetes. Um, So her recommendation was just to strictly only eat meat and drink water until I got my blood sugars under control. Because in her mind, you know, meat is, you know, low carb and high protein and, you know, water is no carb. And so, you know, she thought she was giving me good advice. But again, this goes back to sort of those myths that lead people to have eating disorders or lead people to have unhealthy relationships with food. Um, And ultimately that can cause more damage than the diabetes itself because then you have people who are not taking their shots, they're not monitoring themselves appropriately because they're so scared of gaining weight or eating something wrong. I am so infuriated for you. Um, (laughs) I know Andrea is seething over there. I mean, you all know how I feel about my ice cream and if I had, you know, if I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and I I was told I couldn't eat my ice cream anymore, I would, you know, there would be hell to pay. So, okay, let's maybe shift gears and talk about tools that actually do help diabetics. And and we're talking about, you know, aside from insulin, primarily for type 1 diabetics and medication, primarily for type 2 diabetics. Montana, can you talk to us about how you manage your type 1 diabetes and what tools are available to you? Absolutely. Um, So as, you know, as technology gets better, we're finding that there are better tools, you know, to help us with management. And so when I was first diagnosed back in 2005, um, I did the old school method of just the insulin vial and the syringe. Shortly after that, I was able to transition to insulin pens, which are called uh, MDIs or multiple daily injections. And I did a brief stint on an insulin pump, which pumps are very popular among type 1 diabetics because they give you um, they give you really good control. You don't have to stick yourself as often. Um, and it just is an overall better experience. I'm the minority. I didn't have a great experience with the pump. Um, I was very self-conscious about it. So basically, it's um, at the time, you know, it was bigger than a pager. I used the AccuCheck Spirit Combo. Um, so it was just kind of clunky. And, you know, you wear it 24-7 and you have this this long thin tube and there's an insulin, you know, vial in, in the cartridge. And so you have a cannula and you would change the cannula out, you know, every three days. But that cannula is what delivers the insulin to you. Um, and so I found that I was very self-conscious about it, but I was also breaking out in these welts all over my stomach. Uh, I just, I didn't do well with the adhesive that they used and I didn't do well with, you know, having that on my stomach nonstop. That being said, pumps are a great alternative and a lot of people love them. Um, so I, just, I ditched the pump. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to jump in Montana. So so Salmon, the, the guy I dated in college, he had a pump. Um, that was, I think... When did we start college, Jess? No, that was two. Yeah, it was 2005. He had been a type 1 diabetic since he was two years old, though. He was diagnosed very, very young. Um, and he and I remember, you know, watching him change the the needle out, you know, the little cannula. And, um, you know, he just he I mean, with guys, though, he could wear like baggier pants and he just stuck the pump in his pocket um, and he could unclip his the tubing to like go play sports so it wouldn't like get caught on things but he also occasionally would struggle with like you know finding a good spot that you know wouldn't get irritated or rubbed the wrong way I do remember him mentioning that yeah 
But like I said, you know, a lot of people prefer pumps and, and they work out really well for them. Uh, actually, Lila Moss, she is the daughter of supermodel Kate Moss. Uh, she recently made waves in our community because she walked the uh, runway in a Versace show wearing her insulin pod. Um, so she has a pod version of the pump and she had it on her thigh and not a lot of people knew that she was a diabetic and not a lot of people knew that she was on an insulin pump. And so it was a really big deal for her to go out and sort of show that off to the world because again, we're going back to that conception, you know, oh, only overweight people have diabetes. She is mm -hmm. a literal supermodel <laughs> who has diabetes. So I kind of love that. Yeah, I was going to say, that must have been a really big deal for, for the community, right? Yeah, it was. It was all over Instagram, all the pages that I follow, all the people I know on Instagram um, that are type 1 diabetics were, were talking about it. And it was, it was. It was a big deal. So I feel like I saw another famous person recently that also displayed their insulin pump. And I want to say it was one of the Jonas Brothers. but Oh, yes. Oh. Nick yeah. Jonas. <laughs> yes, yes. Shout out to Nick. Jonas, he um, he's a big deal in her community as well. He's actually behind an organization called Beyond Type One that does a lot to uh, help educate people and does a lot for uh, diabetes, you know, young kids, camps, things like that. Um, so yeah, Nick Jonas is uh, definitely one of the more popular celebrities within our community that has diabetes. <laughs> well, oh I'm glad God. I didn't mis misremember that, but I think, you know, destigmatizing all of these things is so critical. And I love to see when celebrities are using their platforms to, to do good things like this. Yes, absolutely. So Montana or Andrea, did, did one of you guys want to talk about the different types of insulin and long acting versus short acting just briefly? Andrea, do you want to tackle? Sure, yeah. And then, Montana, you can correct me if I get anything wrong. But ultimately, and actually, I'm going to chime in before we start, but insulin was one of the first or most pivotal examples of genetic engineering. And we actually talked about this in our GMO episodes, but we've actually engineered a particular type of bacteria called Escherichia coli to produce insulin so that we used to actually isolate insulin from pigs um, to use for diabetics because pig insulin was the most structurally similar to human insulin. Um, but through scientific technology and the process of genetic engineering, and we we're actually able to insert a gene, the gene for human insulin into this particular type of bacteria. We're able to grow up lots of these bacteria in, you know, flasks essentially in the lab. And they basically produce and spit out tons of this protein because, again, it's just a protein. And then we're able to isolate it and purify it and utilize it for all of these type 1 diabetics that rely on it for, for survival. Um, so little, little plug to... To, uh, genetic engineering technology there. But um, so because we have this technology now, we have a little bit more versatility in the types of insulin that we can produce. So I would say there's probably four main classes. There's rapid acting insulin. So that's going to be 
as it says, very rapid. That's going to be um, starting to kick in within 15 minutes after injection. Um, It peaks in about one hour, and it will continue to work for up to about four hours. Um, This is going to be when you're in some sort of blood sugar crisis where you really have a, a really pronounced blood sugar spike, and you really need to knock that back very quickly. Um, your regular or short-acting insulin, this is kind of your, your traditional insulin, um, that's going to be typically you know, reaching the bloodstream within 30 minutes. It's going to peak at about three hours after injection, and it's going to last for up to about six hours. Um, then you've got your intermediate acting insulin. So that's going to reach the bloodstream about two to four hours after injection, peak up to 12 hours later, and it's going to, you know, last for about 18 hours. Um, and then your long acting insulin, and that's going to be, that's going to reach your bloodstream several hours after injection. So typically one to two hours, and that's going to kind of maintain an even, um, blood glucose level for about a 24 hour period. Um, and so, depending on, you know, your lifestyle, depending on what you've eaten, depending on, you know, what your activities are for a given day. Um, You may need mixes of these different types. You may have a specific pre-mixed, you know, supply of some of these um, and also would depend on how you're delivering your insulin, whether it's a pump, whether it's uh, multiple daily injections, things like that. That's beautiful, Andrea. You did a great job. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted (laughs) Um, to do you justice. You did me justice. You did me proud. Um, And to sort of piggyback off that, so, you know, as Andrea mentioned, it can kind of depend on what type of insulin you use. And so when I was on a pump, I was using a short acting insulin, but I was getting it in very small increments. And so every hour on the hour, I would get, you know, one point between 1.1 and 1.5 units. However, you know, before meals and snacks, based on my carb intake, that would go up. But by getting just that small dosage every hour, it sort of acted like a steady basal, which is like a background insulin and it kept me from spiking. So now that I'm back on MDIs, multiple daily injections, uh, I take Lantus and Novolog. So uh, Lantus is my, my long acting. I take that once every 24 hours. And then Novolog is my short acting. So I take that before meals and snacks. And again, that's depending on, you know, what my sugar is at prior to the meal, what my carb intake is going to be, how I'm feeling that day, if I'm going to exercise later. So there are a lot of things that sort of take into account how much I will take each time, except for the long acting. The long acting pretty much stays the same. It seems like a lot of work to keep this all so tightly regulated. And it really, you know, it makes me, it makes me feel bad for people that have diabetes, not bad because, you know, it's a disability per se, but because I think we underestimate how complex our organ systems are. And we, we underestimate how, little we have to think about these things until we actually have to. 100% could not agree more with that. So maybe this is a good lead into our next topic, um, hyper and hypoglycemia. So hyperglycemia is we're talking about high blood glucose levels when there's too much sugar in the blood, um, and that can lead to extreme thirst, dry mouth, headache, nausea, frequent urination, and blurred vision all of which do not sound pleasant. Um, Montana, did you want to discuss some of your hyperglycemic episodes to us? 
Yeah. So I actually have a, a really funny story. Uh, so this was prior to me actually receiving an official diagnosis. Um, I was tired all the time. I was thirsty all the time. But, you know, I was working full time. I was in school full time. I was sort of living the, the college life, you know, staying out too late. And so I just sort of attributed my symptoms to my lifestyle at the time. I was overexerting myself. Um, and so I was out with a friend one day and we stopped at a gas station to get drinks. And um, he ran inside and he came out with a Mountain Dew for me. And I cannot describe to you the thirst of hyperglycemia. It is like being in the desert, what I imagine being in the desert without water for three days is like. It's almost painful. And so when he brought me this Mountain Dew, it was a, you know, a 20 ounce bottle. You guys, I drank it in three big gulps. Like oh I God. just could not get enough to drink. And so why that wasn't like a red flag to me, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, um, but you know, and I've had, you know, all of the symptoms and, and that's the thing is you can sort of react differently every time, but I've had the dry mouth. I've had terrible headaches. I've been sick to my stomach. I've had to urinate, no kidding, every 10 to 15 minutes when I've, you know, sometimes if I'm sick, if I get like a stomach bug or whatever, that tends to elevate my my glucose levels. And so there are times when I have to urinate every 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. And that's how I know that I'm really, really high without even having to check. Yeah. So then on the flip side, there's hypoglycemia. So there we're talking about low blood glucose, and that can cause shakiness, anxiousness, irritability, cold sweats, numbness, tingling, confusion, and nausea. So Montana, what's this about a 15-15 rule? So the 15-15 rule uh, I mean, you know, my people, we understand what it means and, and why it's there, but I'm telling you, it doesn't always work when you are feeling terrible. So the 15-15 rule is if your sugar is low, you are to ingest 15 grams of carbs. So whether that's a solid, a liquid, you know, frosting, whatever it is, and then wait 15 minutes to see if your glucose levels rise and, and come to a normal, normal level. However, when you, when it's the middle of the night and your blood sugar's in the forties, literally the only thing you want to do is raid the kitchen because your stomach feels empty. It is just like this crazy hunger craving. And so a lot of times that's, you know, people who've had diabetes for a really long time will wake up the next day and say, oh my God, I can't believe I ate all that crap last night, you know, and we'll wake up in the two hundreds. But at the time we felt so bad that it sort of feels like it's like a fight or flight situation. Like if you don't eat, you will die. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that sounds terrifying. Um, I, I have had hypoglycemia, but what you're describing sounds a lot more severe. So I'm not even going to talk about what I've experienced. Okay. So what, what can affect blood glucose, Montana? Everything. So, um, I saw a, like a meme or a graphic one time that said, you know, there are over like a hundred things that can affect glucose levels. Uh, and it's absolutely true. So just to give you guys kind of an example, hormones, menstruation, stress, any type of travel, time zones, time changes, weather changes, exercise, your sleep schedule, any type of illness, any type of trauma, if you have to have dental surgery or you break a bone, uh, puberty can affect your glucose levels. Pregnancy is a huge, huge factor in affecting your glucose levels. 
And the thing that's sort of tricky is that it can go either way. So sometimes exercise, you know, I'll get off the bike or I'll, I'll, you know, be done with the workout and I see that I've spiked in the 200s. And then there are other times when I'm working out and I literally have to stop because I've dropped, you know, into the 50s and I have to go eat something. So it can go either way and you never really know which way it's going to go until it happens. Um, so, you know, here in the States, we just went through uh, the end of daylight savings time. And that's something that diabetics have to take into account too, because that first day where we gained an hour, you know, I had to take my 24 hour shot an hour earlier to account for that and then get back on a regular routine the next day. Um, but anytime we travel, anytime we go anywhere, anytime I'm in the car for a long period of time, it absolutely affects my, my BGs. So hmm. I love that you just say BGs. Um, <laughs> I would not have known what that was. Okay. Andrea, did you have anything to add to that or, or should we move on to our next? I think that's a yeah. great summary. I think it really underscores, you know, anything that's reliant on hormone signaling, which is, you mm-hmm. know, systemic signaling pathways in our body can really be affected by almost every physiological process. So um, unsurprising that blood glucose also falls under that scope. (laughs) Right. So there's a lot of chatter about pregnancy and type 1 diabetes. So maybe we could have a discussion about, you know, whether it does or how it affects fertility. Um, And, you know, obviously, Montana, you had two babies, right? So obviously you can have healthy pregnancies and babies, um, but we should discuss some of the risk factors and potential complications. So does someone want to to kick off that discussion? Yeah, Andrea, do you want to go ahead and then I'll jump in? So just like with any other sort of autoimmune disorder or metabolic disorder or things like that, you know, there are risks of complications. Um, There have been some data that suggests that there are higher rates of stillbirth, potential congenital disorders, um, as well as perinatal mortality. So that's death, you know, around the time of birth um, compared to non-diabetics. There's some indication that, um, or there's some chatter that, you know, type 1 diabetics aren't supposed to breastfeed, but that's in fact not true. Um, In Montana, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, But ultimately, you know, these are things that you're going to want to consult very stringently with both your, you know, your OB as well as your endocrinologist, because we know that there are other types of diabetes, such as gestational diabetes that can also crop up. And so, All of those things need to be heavily monitored if you do want to have both a healthy pregnancy for you and for your baby. But I think, you know, making a blanket statement that it affects fertility outright, um, you know, isn't the full story. There are some risks associated with it, but with appropriate medical care, you can certainly have a healthy pregnancy. Absolutely. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, two, I guess, mostly healthy pregnancies, I will say. Um, thanks to my diabetes, both of my pregnancies were, were miserable. I was sick the whole time. Don't let that deter you from having babies. Um, you know, both of my children did come out with, with low glucose levels and had to be supplemented with formula right away. Uh, but you can certainly have healthy pregnancies. Um, you know, there is a lot of chatter about infertility. And again, it's one of those things where, yes, it's a possibility. So, 
I had my children 12 years apart. And the reason for that, I had, you know, unexplained infertility. I saw a specialist. I did a lot of treatments. And so really the only thing that the doctors could sort of come to a conclusion was that, you know, my diabetes was playing a role in my infertility. And so, you know, my husband and I were, were, at the point where we said, okay, it's just not going to happen. We're not going to have another baby. We have practically a teenager on our hands and then surprise. So now we have a two-year-old and a 14-year-old. So, And what a sweet surprise that was. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So basically in a nutshell, it, that, it sounds like type 1 diabetes can impact fertility. That doesn't mean that if you are a type 1 diabetic that you cannot have a healthy pregnancy or baby, um, but there are um, some risk factors and complications that can be associated. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I wasn't able to breastfeed. I had to take such large amounts of insulin during my pregnancy that they think it sort of had an impact on my ability uh, to lactate. So I did not mm. breastfeed with either one of my children. The first time I got colostrum, didn't get any milk. And then the second time I didn't even get colostrum. But I know that there are type ones out there who have successfully breastfed. Hmm. Okay. Next question. Does insulin cause weight gain or prohibit weight loss? Yeah. <laughs> Was that a yes, Montana? That yes. That's the short answer, Andrea. Do you want to break down the science behind it? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, when you're taking an external hormone, which is going to have long-term, you know, and systemic effects on your metabolism, which is ultimately, you know, what insulin is doing, it certainly can affect how you process all those calories that you're consuming, right? So as we mentioned in the beginning, we're talking about supplementing with this peptide hormone that our pancreas normally produces so that we can take up that blood sugar and ultimately use it for energy that our cells need. Now, we know that excess calories, so calories that are not utilized by cells, um, you know, can ultimately lead to weight gain. So, you know, if we want a really simplistic view of weight gain, it's consuming more calories than your body is expending, right? So when you have a condition like type 1 diabetes where you're supplementing what you're eating with insulin in order to appropriately regulate your blood sugar, it's never a perfect solution. It's not going to be as perfect as what your body's going to do naturally. And so ultimately what, what ends up happening is that you're going to be, you know, regulating your blood sugar. That's first and foremost, right? We need to make sure that we have, you know, healthy blood sugar, healthy metabolism, all of that. But as a result of that, you know, it can lead to... Um, unintentional weight gain. It also may make losing weight more challenging because ultimately you're you're artificially altering your metabolism because your body is not doing it naturally. And so, yes, it, it can be a common side effect of having to take insulin. But of course, you can still be very healthy while taking insulin, while being a type 1 diabetic. I think, you know, we want to underscore that, you know, there are lots of body shapes and types that are healthy, um, but it can be a challenge for people to kind of maintain a specific weight. Absolutely. You know, there are football players and marathoners and 
you know, rock climbers and like super athletes who, who are type one diabetic. So you're absolutely right. But that on, you know, on the flip side, that doesn't mean that just because you're carrying the extra weight that you're lazy or you're, you know, you're not managing yourself. And, and something else to sort of take into account is that, you know, as Andrea said, we're essentially acting like a pancreas. We are doing the job that our pancreas did not do. And so, you know, in the mornings when I wake up, I'm incredibly insulin resistant. And so I find that for breakfast, I have to take one unit of insulin for every three grams of carbs. But then I also have to do a correction dose because I usually wake up high because again, I'm super resistant in the mornings. Whereas in the evenings, you know, that's where I tend to see some of my lows because I don't have as much resistance as I did, you know, when I first wake up. Okay. So let's maybe wrap things up with a, I think, a very important discussion about healthcare providers um, who may not know enough about diabetes. I, I mean, I would imagine that some sometimes the symptoms that are associated, you know, some of the things that you've described, Montana, I would imagine could be misdiagnosed as the flu, stomach bug, um, and, and I would imagine that could lead to complications and frustrations. So let's talk a little bit about that. Have, have you experienced any of that, Montana? Oh, God, yes. There's one study that came out of um, diabetes journals that said, you know, up to 25% of people were misdiagnosed. And so a lot of times, you know, you go to the ER with these symptoms and they say, oh, it's the flu. Oh, it's a stomach bug. Uh, and, you know, they pump you full of fluids and they send you on your way. But this is really dangerous because it can end up leading to something called DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. And so um, beyond type one, which is actually, you know, that Nick Jonas organization I mentioned earlier came up with a DKA campaign to sort of get these posters in emergency rooms and doctor's offices and things like that to encourage clinicians to check for diabetes, but also to know the signs of diabetes. And I think, you know, for a diabetic, one of the things that we dread more than anything is having to go to the emergency room because nine times out of 10, they don't know enough about diabetes. They're not equipped to deal with diabetes. Um, and so, again, it leads to a lot of those myths and misconceptions, you know, where they'll come in and, you know, maybe my blood sugar's is a 200 and they're freaking out and saying I need to take a shot. But I'm saying, no, I don't. Um, and so, you know, one of the times that I was in the hospital, I asked for a ginger ale because I was having some nausea and they wouldn't give me a ginger ale, but they brought me four servings of fruit with my meal. And so those four servings of fruit that they expected me to eat with one meal had far more carbs and sugar than, a, you know, that small can of ginger ale that I would have would have sipped on. And so we really just have to work in order to educate people more and help them to understand it's not just about what we're eating. It's not just about the insulin. We really have to put all of those pieces together to fill in the puzzle and make sure that we're being taken care of. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so important, Montana. And I think it really underscores the fact that, you know, specialized medical conditions such as type 1 diabetes, you know, that's why there are clinical specialists, right? That's why there are endocrinologists that de deal with these sorts of medical conditions. And, you know, you can't, it's, it's, 
it's unrealistic to expect every clinician to be an expert in every medical condition, but I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be more kind of widespread myth debunking so that if you did have to go into the ER, you know, those emergency department physicians and nurses and things like that would be able, would be better equipped to, to manage you. Um, and I, and I love the idea of getting those posters up there because there are some very key, um, symptoms of of diabetic ketoacidosis in particular that can be used to essentially do a differential and triage somebody that's in a crisis. And, and you know, I should add that I have the utmost respect for, for clinicians and healthcare providers and, you know, Jess's husband, Dr. Ethan. I love Dr. Ethan. Um, but, you know, he's an ER doctor. And if, he's, uh, if it's a busy night and he's got 17 patients, he really has to make a snap decision. And so if he's educated, then he's in a better situation. And Ethan, I'm not calling you out. I'm not saying <laughs> you've ever misdiagnosed anyone. Don't come for me later. Oh my but gosh. I'm saying that education is so, so important because it's so easy to misidentify and miss something that could eventually lead to, to someone's death. Montana, it has been so amazing having you on today. We're so appreciative of your candor and transparency and willingness to share um, your experiences. Um, and, you know, of course, we, you know, we don't just talk about anecdotes which is why it was so great to pair um, your stories with the actual, you know, with the science. Um, and I think this was a really great discussion. We, we really appreciate everything that you've done for the pod and for being on today. So thank you. I love you guys. And I <laughs> am so thankful to you for giving me this platform, for letting me come on and talk about this stuff. And people are going to say, oh, you didn't discuss this. We can only squeeze so many things into a short mm-hmm. amount of time. Oh, girl. But I think we did a great job covering it so don't come for us in the comments and the dms um but really really thank you guys so much for giving me this platform uh november is national diabetes awareness month so this was a perfect time to have this discussion and i'm so so grateful to you guys for letting me come on we are so grateful for you for everything about you but especially for for sharing all this i think I think, yeah, the science is one thing, but I but I know that these personal stories also resonate so much with people that are going through similar situations. Beautifully said. And, and all I was going to say is that people will inevitably come for us in our DMs, Montana, <laughs> um, but we can always do a part two in the future. So if you do have feedback on this topic or you have other questions that you'd like us to answer, just shoot us a message, shoot us an email, um, and we'll love to, we would love to address it on a future episode. With that, Andrea, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And a special thanks to the inimitable Montana Mullins for sharing her experiences with diabetes as well. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com for show notes for every episode. You can send us a donation and you can even pick yourself up some unbiased science merch. Next episode, we are going to tackle the topic of food sensitivity tests with a special guest and some primers on basic immunology. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.